Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. All right, so that's going to do it for the October sitting at the Supreme Court. The justices heard three more cases, bringing the total number to six. So very, very busy two weeks for them, right, Greg? That's sarcasm. That's sarcasm. It, it was relative to, to what they've been doing all summer, I guess, right? <laughs> That's right. They're easing into it, I guess. We're going to talk about a redistricting case that the justices heard this week. Um, but before we do, Greg, um, is there anything to chat about, about what the court did this week besides your arguments? <laughs> you know, I, I don't think they've granted any cases since our last podcast, although we may be getting some grants today, Friday, after we record this podcast, but before it gets released. Right. So I guess you're not going to use your your ability to see the future to tell us what those grants are going to be or? Well, I can I can guess at one. Would you like me to? Sure. Yeah, I guess at one. <laughs> well, it's possible. You know, they've, they've taken that case that uh, could overturn the, the so-called Chevron doctrine that, that gives administrative agencies some latitude to interpret ambiguous statutes. And in the case they granted, they still haven't scheduled arguments. Justice Jackson is recused from that case because she took part as a D.C. Circuit judge. And on the conference list for their conference today is another case that raises almost exactly the same issue. In fact, even goes after the same uh, monitor requirement for fishing boats that was is an issue in the other case. And so it's possible that what the court is going to do is to grant another case uh, raising the same issues so that Justice Jackson can take part in it. And so we'll see something that's a little bit like what we had last Last term with the affirmative action cases where she could take part in the North Carolina case, but not the, the Harvard case. Yeah. And I think one thing that sort of signals strongly that that might be the case is the fact that the case that's already been put on the docket, Loper Bright, was granted last term. And so typically we see all of the cases that have been granted last term set for argument in October, November and December. The court this week just released its December sitting and Loper Bright was not on it. So I think that sort of is another indication that they're sort of waiting on this other case. Is that how you read it, Greg? That is how I read it. That's our big news. Woo. All right. Wow. (laughs) Everybody take a breath. Breathe in, breathe out. Get ready. All right, Greg. Well, here's a case that the justices did schedule and actually heard this last week. It's a redistricting case out of South Carolina in which civil rights groups are claiming that the GOP legislature drew legislative maps based on race to talk with us about it is going to be Jason Torchinsky. He's a partner at Holtzman Vogel, specializing in campaign finance, election law, and lobbying disclosure. And he filed an amicus brief in the case, uh, siding with the GOP legislators. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. One thing I wanted to sort of talk about before we jump into the South Carolina case is uh, we had a case last year, redistricting case last year out of Alabama. Can you tell us um, how this case is different from that case? Sure. The Allen versus Milligan case, which was the case last year out of Alabama, was about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is basically a requirement that under if certain conditions are met that you have to draw a majority-minority district. The South Carolina case is a different sort of structure completely. In their argument, at least the argument that was being reviewed by the court, was you drew the district lines on the basis of race, regardless of whether it's majority-minority, and that violates the Constitution. Jason, let's 
now dive into the case that the court heard this week. But I want to refer back to a 2019 Supreme Court decision called Rucho, in which the Supreme Court said you can draw district lines for purely partisan reasons and there's no constitutional issue there. With that as the backdrop, South Carolina, which is the legislature is controlled by Republicans, they could have drawn the districts there for purely Republican purposes. Why are we even in the Supreme Court? Why didn't South Carolina Republicans just say, we're going to try to maximize the number of safe Republican seats? Well, they did. But the the challenge in South Carolina is that because particularly in African-American population in South Carolina, there's an extremely high correlation between African-American population and Democrat votes, north of, of 90%. And there's not a lot of dispute about that. So when you try to draw districts, even if you were using just political data, if you tried to draw the first district more Republican, you are very likely going to wind up changing the percentage of the African-American voting age population in the first congressional district. So the sort of net effect of making decisions on the basis of politics also made a change in the racial composition of the district. And, you know, after listening to the court, there was one major factual thing that I think some of the justices got wrong. One of the justices, or several of them, kept repeating that the black percentage of District 1 was exactly the same after redistricting as it was before, but that's actually not right. The the benchmark district, meaning District 1 with the 2020 census data applied to it, was 17.78% black voting age population, and the district after it was redrawn was 16.72% black voting age population. So there was about a 1% difference. Listening to the oral argument, if that's all you listen to, you would think that the population percentage in the new District 1 was exactly 17.78, but that's not actually accurate. Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned sort of uh, the factual um, disputes that were that we heard about in the Supreme Court, because that's not usual for Supreme Court cases. I mean, of course, the Supreme Court is an appellate court. It is in this situation, too, although it's a, a little bit different from some of its other cases. Uh, but we heard a, a lot about what the standard of review is for the justices here. I think the first question from Justice Thomas was about this idea of clear error review. And it seemed like the justices were a little confused as to how that should apply in redistricting cases and in partisan gerrymandering cases specifically. Could you sort of give us an overview of what that disagreement was about? Yeah. So, you know, there's a standard of review for facts and there's a standard of review for law by appellate courts. And usually, you know, in a normal case, right, there's a single district judge who makes factual findings and makes conclusions of law. And then it goes to the appeals court and the, you know, the the circuit court has either a three-judge panel or an en banc hearing. And the Supreme Court is ultimately reviewing the findings of, you know, it's kind of the tertiary review. In redistricting cases, it follows a different process because of a statute called 2284, which creates three-judge district court panels that has to have at least one judge from the circuit. Um, And then those cases go on direct appeal to the United States Supreme Court. So they bypass completely the, the circuit courts of appeals. And so this is an unusual kind of case because the U.S. Supreme Court is the first and only level of appellate review. Uh, 
I think it was um, Justice Alito said, you know, are we just supposed to rubber stamp these factual findings or are we supposed to look at them and decide whether or not they're actually accurate? And that was the dispute. Justice Thomas has very long been a strong advocate of deferring to the factual findings of the, of the district court. And, you know, I think there's both legal and factual issues that intertwine in this case. And I think the judges were trying to sort out what they can overrule of the district court and what they're bound by from the district court based on the different levels of review that are applicable to the questions of law and the questions of fact. So how does uh, South Carolina get over that that hurdle that you sort of laid out there, this notion that generally appellate courts re- overturn factual findings only if they are clearly erroneous? If South Carolina is going to win on those grounds, w- what were the arguments that seemed to resonate? So I think what was really bothering particularly Justice Roberts, if you listen to his questions, was the idea that there was no direct evidence that race drove what they were doing, right? The evidence that race drove what they were doing was presented by three PhD expert witnesses who said, oh, look, it was more likely that they moved African-American voters out of District 1 than it was that they moved white voters out of District 1. And frankly, when you consider the high correlation between race and politics, that's not surprising if politics was driving what you were doing. And what was lacking in this case, which was present in other kind of partisan gerrymandering cases, is, you know, emails that say things like, can't draw the district unless it's, you know, 18.2% black, or in the case of Bethune Hill from from Virginia a couple years ago, where they said, you know, the majority black districts have to be at least 55% black. There was no direct evidence of any racial targets or racial decision-making by the actual decision-makers. The uh, All of the evidence that this was quote-unquote race-based was based on the statistical evidence that said, well, more likely that they move blacks than whites. But again, if the majority of Democrats in that region happen to be African-American and you're making decisions on the basis of politics, it's not surprising that you move more blacks than whites if you were trying to draw a more Republican first district. And I think Justice Roberts is having a really hard time with that because, as he pointed out, there's never been a partisan gerrymandering case that the Supreme Court has concluded violated the law when there wasn't direct evidence. And so I think he's very concerned about using statistical evidence to make these kinds of determinations. And I think Justice Kagan spoke to this where she said, you know, this is really the first case that we've had post Rocho that really brings these issues to the forefront. And she said it's no surprise um, that legislatures who are savvy are not going to be writing the kind of emails that that you talked about. And so I I guess one of the things that I've been hearing is um, from from people is that now if you take Rocho, that there's this ability for legislatures to sort of mask the use of race with partisanship and sort of get a free pass. And there's not going to be that kind of direct evidence because, you know, legislatures, they have lawyers like you who know, like, that's not a, don't, don't put that in there. Um, or don't, you know, don't rely on race. Um, so what, what, do, what's your response to that? Um, my response to that is it, it varies dramatically, right? Because South Carolina is a little bit unique in that, you know, African-American population is probably the largest minority group in the state. But African-American population is one of the very few populations that is reliably Democrat. 
Um, you know, if you look around the country at other minority groups, you know, Hispanic voters, percentages of, of Democrat versus Republican vote vary dramatically based on even within a single state, sort of where they are, what the, the national origin is, what the particular community is, right? I mean, Cubans in South Florida vote overwhelmingly Republican. Uh, you know, Puerto Ricans who, who now live in the Orlando area is more of a mixed bag, more like 50-50. So, you know, the, the Hispanics now that live in, in South Texas, I mean, are solidly Republican. So, you know, the African-American vote is a little bit unique in the voting rights context because it is so reliably Democrat. And I think that Justice Kagan was missing the nuance of that because if you're trying to draw on the basis of politics and you're in an area with substantial African-American population and because that correlation continues to hold, it is there is going to be a partisan mixture of it. And, and think about it this way. I mean, really what the, what the other side was saying is there's a constitutional violation if you drop the black population of the first district – from 17.78 to 16.72. What they were really saying and what their experts were saying was, no, 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 that district really needs to be drawn at something like 18, 19, 20, or 21% African-American, frankly, so that a Democrat can win that district. So really what you're talking about here, in my view, is essentially what is a partisan gerrymandering claim wrapped in the in the guise of a racial discrimination claim, because that's really what was going on here. Well, that actually leads into a, a question I've been scratching my head about. If your side were to lose this case, what would be the remedy? Would the South Carolina legislature necessarily have to draw something that is more favorable to Democrats, or could they just, you know, reimpose or, or re reenact the same map or something very similar, just making cl- very clear, even more clear in your mind, perhaps, that they are doing it for partisan purposes, not racial purposes? Well, that's a really good question, and this goes into, I think, some of the questions that a couple of the justices had about, you know, why the plaintiffs didn't present alternative maps, right? In the Section 2 context, where you're trying to prove that you can create a majority-minority district, there's a clear requirement from the courts that you have to produce a map, right? You have to show that you can draw the majority-minority district. Here, what the state is saying is there is no way to achieve the racial targets that the, that the plaintiffs appear to require that we meet and obtain our political goals. And that the defendants over and over again at the trial court said, show us what a map would look like that you think doesn't discriminate on the basis of race that still meets our political goals. And the plaintiffs never produced one. And I think the answer is because given the high correlation between African-Americans and Democrats in that region of South Carolina, you really can't draw the district more Republican without dropping the black population from the benchmark. And the other thing I also think you should keep in mind when you're thinking about this is the first district of South Carolina was overpopulated by 90,000 people. So 90,000 people had to come out of the first district and get moved into neighboring districts because Congressman Clyburn's district, which was right next door, was underpopulated by, I want to say, fifty or 60,000 people. So you had to move out a whole lot of people out of the first district anyway. Um, and the, the, frankly, the, the plaintiffs still have not come up with a map that they've ever produced publicly that shows how to achieve the political goals of the legislature without having a racial effect that they claim is discriminatory. 
My last question for you, sort of taking a look at these redistricting cases as a as a whole, I don't know if you feel like this, but it seems like, you know, of course there have been a steady stream of redistricting cases that have come up to the court over the years. Um, does it feel like they're getting sort of more, I don't know the right word, but sort of that each one has a bit of a higher stake and they're getting a little bit more contentious? I mean, look, the... I think what you're seeing is, and if you look at most of the cases, right, most of the cases, frankly, have been brought by the left. And they tend to be brought by whichever party doesn't feel like they were on the winning end of the sort of executive legislative debate over the lines in any particular state, right? I mean, if you go around the country, you know, the left has filed lawsuits in Texas where Republicans control, in Alabama where Republicans control, in Louisiana where Republicans control, in Florida where Republicans control, in Georgia where Republicans control, South Carolina, North Carolina. Um, they filed a lawsuit last decade in Virginia when Republicans were in control. And look, Republicans have filed lawsuits in New York and New Mexico and Oregon, right? And essentially, there is no incentive in this redistricting battleground since the, the courts have engaged in it, where if you have the resources, there's no incentive not to take a shot at some legal theory on the map, right? Because if you take the shot and you lose, you're no worse off than you were before you filed your lawsuit. But if you file your lawsuit, and you increase the chance of winning a seat or two in Congress or a couple of seats in your state house or a couple of seats in your state legislature, that may make the difference between your party being in the majority or the minority. And so there's no incentive not to sue if you don't perceive that your side is on the winning end of the political debate that, that preceded the, the enactment of the maps. And I think that's why you're, you're seeing you know, what, what my side would call the, the sue until blue strategy. I mean, there were 19 redistricting lawsuits brought by the left in North Carolina last decade alone. 19 lawsuits in one decade in a single state. And that's frankly why the people of North Carolina had almost no stability in what their legislative and congressional district maps look like for the entire decade. If the Supreme Court sides with you in South, Car- South Carolina, Will they shut off the spigot to some degree, at least with these ty- these types of lawsuits alleging racial gerrymandering? It'll make racial gerrymandering claims a lot harder, uh, and particularly if the court does impose a clear alternative map requirement um, in these partisan gerrymandering cases, or sorry, in these well, <laughs> in these racial gerrymandering cases that I think are partisan gerrymandering cases dressed up as racial gerrymandering cases, the specifics of what the court describes in terms of what an alternative map would need to show is going to be crucial to the success of these cases going forward, assuming that they actually impose an alternative map. Um, requirement like we have in the Section 2 context. And I'm not 100% sure based on the questions that I count five justices for that. Um, I think I could get to two or three based on the questions, but I don't know that I could get to five based on the questions. All right. Well, um, that's going to do it for me. Thank you so much. really appreciate it. All right. All right, Greg, we should probably wrap this up so we can be ready in case the court does grant. Um, some new cases today. Very exciting. More cases. The justices will return to the bench on October 30th. Getting close to spooky. Ooh. Uh, until then, we'll be following along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. On Uncommon Law, we've covered a lot of topics. 
non-compete clauses, affirmative action, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the bar exam, and who could forget the business of bees? I also remember the bees. But there's one thing we've never talked about. Haunted houses. In honor of Halloween, we present to you a very scary episode of Uncommon Law. So turn off the lights and prepare to be terrified by the justice system. And hey, maybe even learn a little something along the way. I'm your host, Matthew Schwartz, and this is Uncommon Law, Halloween edition. Ooh. Coming soon from Bloomberg Industry Group.